I'm going to cut that thing I said about Hamlet. That needs to be removed. Welcome to Why Is This Good, a podcast by the Naples Writers Workshop. I'm Christine, and I'm here with John. Hey, John. Hello. All right, it's my turn. I chose The Girls in Their Summer Dresses by Erwin Shaw. Michael sighed and closed his eyes and rubbed them gently with his fingertips. I love the way women look. One of the things I like best about New York is the battalions of women. When I first came to New York from Ohio, that was the first thing I noticed. The million wonderful women all over the city. I walked around with my heart in my throat. A kid, Francis said. That's a kid's feeling. Guess again, Michael said. Guess again. I'm older now. I'm a man getting near middle age, putting on a little fat, and I still love to walk around Fifth Avenue at 3 o'clock on the east side of the street between 50th and 57th streets. They're all out then. Make leaving their shopping and their furs and their crazy hats, everything all concentrated from all over the world into eight blocks, the best furs, the best clothes, the handsomest women out to spend money and feeling good about it, looking coldly at you, making believe they're not looking at you as you go past. The Japanese waiter put the two drinks down, smiling with great happiness. Everything is all right, he asked. Everything is wonderful, Michael said. If it's just a couple of fur coats, Francis said, and $45 hats, it's not the fur coats or the hats. That's just the scenery for that particular kind of woman. Understand, he said, you don't have to listen to this. I want to listen. I like the girls in the offices, neat with their eyeglasses, smart, chipper, knowing what everything is about, taking care of themselves all the time. He kept his eye on the people going slowly past outside the window. I like the girls on 44th Street at lunchtime, the actresses all dressed up on nothing a week, talking to the good looking boys, wearing themselves out, being young and vivacious outside Sardis, waiting for producers to look at them. I like the sales girls in Macy's paying attention to you first because you're a man, leaving lady customers waiting, flirting with you over socks and books and phonographs needles. I got all this stuff accumulated in me because I've been thinking about it for 10 years and now you've asked for it and here it is. Go ahead, Francis said. When I think of New York City, I think of all the girls, the Jewish girls, the Italian girls, the Irish, Polak, Chinese, German, Negro, Spanish, Russian girls, all on parade in the city. I don't know whether it's something special with me or whether every man in the city walks around with the same feeling inside him, but I feel as though I'm at a picnic in this city. I like to sit near the women in the theaters, the famous beauties who've taken six hours to get ready and look at, and the young girls at the football games with the red cheeks, and when the warm weather comes, the girls in their summer dresses. He finishes his drink. That's the story you asked for it, remember? I can't help but look at them. I can't help but want them. Okay, so obviously I picked this section because this is when he gets kind of on his high horse and says, all right, here's all of it all at once. High horse. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) just makes for great reading. He's a poet in this moment. So this is obviously a famous story. And like all famous stories, I am coming to it extremely late. (laughs) And uh, I came across it because the New York Times did a play on it for for a headline of a story. The New York Times likes to write about trends that are happening. There's a whole Twitter account that makes fun of this. It's called like, this is happening and the New York Times is on it. And so there's stories that are so obvious in the moment that they're boring to read. Like they had one about men wearing their hair in buns when that was a thing like 10 years ago uh, when it first started. And it's like, you got to think of what people in 50 years will think when they read that article, right? They'll think to themselves, that's weird. I remember that. But when we read it, it sounds so redundant. Anyway, so they had one of these classic stories where it was like, men are wearing dresses now. Like, that's a normal thing. And uh, it said, the boys in their summer dresses. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And uh, I was like, what is this play? And then the intro references story. And I went down a rabbit hole. And it was written by Erwin Shaw, like I said, in 1939. So this I feel similar to me to the story that you shared for a couple reasons. It's called Where Are You Going? Where Have You Been? 
But this one feels timeless in a similar sense. And they're both about women, right? And the male gaze. (laughs) But this is a story about a man like trying to explain to his wife that while he wants to be with her and is with her and thinks she's beautiful, that hasn't stopped him from appreciating every other woman that he ever sees. And this story starts with like an argument because they're having a really nice time and they're out on the city. And (laughs) the wife says, you're you're like, you're going to break your neck looking at these girls. And at first it's playful. And then she keeps pushing him and he kind of doesn't appreciate it at a certain point she can tell that she's struck a nerve and that's when she keeps pushing and then we have this kind of diatribe over drinks and this is not something he wanted to tell his wife he says that in the section that I read but she really wants to understand because she doesn't understand how he can look at them but still love her what a timeless conundrum right (laughs) I didn't I needed to know when this was written because aside from the section that I read where he's using the word negro and, and Chinese and you know like listing all the types of women it was really hard to tell was this written in the early 1900s or was it written in the 70s like I don't know there's no cell phones Uh, New York City is thriving and they go to a Giants game I don't know it it was just it could have been anywhere yeah I was like I don't know what's happening but I was surprised to see that it was as old as it was because it to me this felt modern in the sense that it was extremely honest a husband and a wife talking about this and timeless in the sense that there are probably husbands and wives today who have this problem but don't talk about it and timeless in the sense of this Joyce Carol Oates story that you shared where it's you know here's a teenage girl that's going to get preyed on by adult men neither of these problems have been resolved what would these authors think <laughs> <laughs> and like Joyce Carol Oates it also happens the story just happens over the course of an afternoon over the course of a conversation where it just kind of builds and there's no tension there's no climax in this story but it's this conversation that they keep kind of circling back to and they're having it as they kind of traipse around the city trying to decide what they're going to do and they'll decide to step into a restaurant and they'll talk about that for a second but then they keep coming back to this whether intentionally or accidentally and I thought the way it was written was I, I didn't know what I was getting into when I clicked this link right and I was like oh my gosh I loved it had you read it before? I've I never read it and never heard of it. I mean, I think I've heard the phrase before, but I didn't know it was attached to a story. But I think the section you read was the climax, right? Because the uh, the story is each of them gets uh, caught by this idea, right? So when she tries to pull back from it, his mind is still there. When he tries to pull back from it, her mind is still there. So they keep coming back to it because of that until finally he like says, you want to do this? All right, we're going to do this. Let me tell you how I really feel. And then she cries. And then he thinks she has nice legs <laughs> and they decide not to go to the Giants game. They decide to go to the country with the boring people. Instead, the story it swept me up. It has such energy and it's just conversation um, that back and forth, which, you know, there's so many stories that do this and we should remember, we should remind ourselves as writers, how much energy dialogue can have, you know, to just grab the reader and just pull them along, especially that kind of good agonistic dialogue where there's people who are kind of wrestling over something too, but back and forth. Yeah, this is this story is really well done. I, when I finished the first time I read it, I finished it. And I, I just I, I hadn't written any notes and I knew we were doing it for the podcast, but I just got to the end and I was like, my only comment was wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so what helpful. A, what a good story. That's that's my takeaway. Wow. Gee golly, Willikers. 
Well, to your point about the dialogue moving quickly and kind of sweeping you along, I think he's described it to as like having momentum. But the other thing at play in this piece is part of what I mentioned, which is that they're literally walking around the city. There's a momentum that way. There's They're not seated at a table or they're not trapped in a scene. And we don't have the sense that uh, this is going to be contained somehow. And there's this sense at the beginning that the day is, the possibilities are limitless, right? They decide at the beginning of the day, let's spend the whole day together. Let's go to a game. Let's go to dinner. And then afterwards, let's go to a movie. When I read that line, I knew I was 33 because I was tired. And they have all these plans. And the same way that they're running through the city and you know, like going down this street and that street and everyone else is around them and New York City is alive, the conversation feels that much more alive. And the story feels like it's happening, like it's moving. This isn't, like I said, at their dining room table at their house. It's not quiet. It's bustling. And so I think that's effective. Yeah. I, my reading of this is they were walking down the street, started this conversation, and then went into a bar and stayed there and talked. Yeah. But they're talking about like what they could do. They're talking about potential. Okay. That's yeah. Okay. And like as they're walking, they're like, they're crossing like intersections and they're seeing people that are also, it's a live active scene and we don't know where they're going to physically end up. For all I know at the beginning, they might end up at that Giants game, right? I was, I was, I wanted to see that. I was like, oh, I want to yeah. see Giants. I was like, well, what's that going to look like? <laughs> Yeah, so you're right. They're not like doing a ton of stuff, but they're in a city that's, it's like a theater set where they're changing the set behind the characters, but they don't want to pull the curtain. And there's all this kind of stuff swirling around them, right? And they're going to change the scenery. That's what it felt like. It felt alive. It's interesting that you were thinking a lot about the scenery because there is not a lot of description. It's there, but it's very spare. In fact, when he first, like the first beginning of it, when uh, they walked without saying anything among the young and pleasant looking people who somehow seemed to make up most of the population of that section of New York City. Look out, Francis said as they crossed 8th Street. You'll break your neck. Michael laughed and Francis laughed with him. She's not so pretty anyway, Francis said. Anyway, not pretty enough to take a chance breaking your neck looking at her. Michael laughed again. He laughed louder this time, but not as solidly. There's no description of the street. There's no description of the woman he's looking at. It comes up later where he describes what she looks at and stuff. But I really like that as a uh, as a way to introduce this thing, you know, the, the central conflict, I guess, of the story. You could easily rewrite that. I don't think it would gain or lose anything to like put in a little thing about like, you know, Michael turned his head to watch a so-and-so passing by or whatever. But the fact that it's written this way is very, um, it's spare and it focuses strictly on the dynamic between him and her, between Michael and Francis without bringing anything else into it. The only things that happen in the in those lines is what they say. They're crossing 8th Street together. Michael laughs. Francis laughs. Francis speaks again and Michael laughs again. There's no like, he's not, he's not reaching out into the scene. It's just the dynamic between the two of them and how they're communicating with each other, which is basically what the whole story is, is just what they say to each other and their actions they take with one. There's like moments when he touches her thigh and, and he like holds her hand to get up on a curb and stuff like that. You know, it's always what's between them. Not always, but it focuses a lot on what's between them. I think that's, it's a great isolated telling. 
And it's interesting when he chooses to uh, to actually reach out into the scene because uh, later, shortly thereafter, he uh, say, are you listening to me? This is Francis speaking. Sure, he said. He took his eyes off the hatless girl with the dark hair, cut dancer style like a helmet, who was walking past him with the self-conscious strength and grace dancers have. She was walking without a coat, and she looked very solid and strong, and her belly was flat like a boy's under her skirt, and her hips swung boldly because she was a dancer and also because she knew Michael was looking at her. She smiled a little to herself as she went past, and Michael noticed all these things before he looked back at his wife. Sure, he said. We're going to watch the Giants, and we're going to eat steak, and we're going to see a French picture. How do you like that? All of a sudden, we're very much focused on this person, whereas in the other one, not even mentioned. It's an interesting choice. I almost read that section because I thought it was a really good description of where his head goes when he looks at these women, right? That's right. Yeah. I feel like today we we just portray men as like drooling at women, but there's a lot more to it, right? He's <laughs> He's also like coming up with some kind of dynamic between him and the stranger in the seven steps that she takes and that he watches her for, you know? And that's the thrill of it. Not just taking her in physically, but thinking to himself, like, what kind of a woman she is and what she's getting from the encounter. And he could be spot on or he could be, you know, imagining all of it, but that's like the thrill. And uh, I thought that was really well done too. Because poor Francis thinks like, all women are hunks of meat. I have a personality he chose to marry but I will never be able to compete with the hunks of meat. And it's like, right. But your husband's not just looking at them. He's also thinking to himself, like all of these other things. And she, she gets into that a little bit. She's like, are you ever going to make a move? And he's like, no. And she's like, how could you know that? And he's like, you're right. I can't know that. And she's like, I bet you know, if you will. And he's like, I probably will, which is such a sad scene. He basically says, yeah, I probably eventually will cheat on you or, you know, do something that you wouldn't like. And she's like, just promise me you'll never tell me about it. So in that moment, I did know it was definitely uh, like pre-70s. <laughs> I was like, this has got to be like in the 50s, right? <laughs> just keep our happy family together. But yeah, there's just so much to it. And, and that little description, he could do that to 10 million women on the street and make the story 10 times longer. But he just packed it all into that one. And it was like, oh, wow, this is it. Yeah, it's probably good that it's only the one that we get, get those thought processes for because it's enough. We know that it happens again. We get to see the character of that kind of, of what he's doing, what he's thinking. And then we, then we can fill that in later. So it's a spareness again, even though it's giving us a lot here, but it allows for that spareness elsewhere. Right. And it also allows you to make this story mostly dialogue, right? There's not even like these large sections of prose throughout. Yeah. You get to the big long paragraphs and you realize, oh, that's him, you know, talking for a long time. That's not description. Yeah, pontificating. This story, it says on the site that I think we're going to link to, it's like 30, 3,200 words about. That's a length that had this been all prose, you probably can't accomplish as much as you do when it's dialogue. It feels like like when you look at these sentences, when how many paragraphs there are, because you hit return every time, it feels like we like stretch the story for everything it's worth by letting these characters banter quickly versus trying to capture what they're thinking with some kind of like third person omniscient, right? Like yeah. dialogue works so much faster to capture thoughts if it's well done. Oh yeah, if it's well done. Yeah, and to capture like what a character says versus what they're thinking. Like, um, maybe I will pull up that section where she's like, are you ever going to make a move? Because I think that's a section where you can really think like, you know, you're reading what he's saying, but you're also reading into it. While you're looking for that, let me read this one because uh, this is kind of doing what you're talking about. It's right after what I what I was reading earlier. She's like, 
That's it, Francis said flatly. That's the program for the day. Or maybe you'd just rather walk up and down Fifth Avenue. No, Michael said carefully. Not at all. You always look at other women, Francis said, at every damn woman in the city of New York. I love the word damn in that sentence because let her express herself here. Oh, come now, Michael said, pretending to joke. Only pretty ones. And after all, how many pretty women are there in New York? 17? There's the line pretending to joke. Sometimes with the dialogue... And the thoughts as a writer, you, you don't have to sp- specify exactly what they're saying or exactly what they're thinking. You can just hint at the fact that the words are not quite what he means, but it's what's he, just what he's trying to put forth rather than uh, like he's, right. he's uh, it's um, something like a lie, you know, like a, a little obfuscation, a little um, misdirection, a little something that's not quite expressing what he wants, what he is thinking. And we don't have to, you can just say that by little words like pretending or, um, you know, a little take back words like that that just let us know as readers that this isn't quite right. I think it's it's interesting because I think this is a dynamic most of us are probably familiar with if you're in a relationship or you've seen couples kind of argue and there's always someone in every argument who's trying to avoid the argument usually and they know their partner well enough to know like what they have to say to make this okay or to just gloss over it you know and what a great way to illustrate the point that we're trying to make which is that you know good realistic dialogue is when people say something but might be thinking something different or say something and want it to be interpreted in a certain way so often we think that dialogue if it's well done is clever or something you know and it's like no dialogue's well done when there's a couple things going on with what they're saying and this is a really good way to think of it like the next time you have characters talking like maybe they're about to get into an argument and one of them doesn't want to there's gonna be things they say to just skirt the argument that they don't really mean and that like kind of opens up this idea in your mind of what they could be intending with their words We always talk about how like novice writers think that characters always speak their minds. It's not true. You'll read these scenes that are so boring because they're like, well, I love you. I love you too. Well, that's boring as hell. You know, there's another moment in here that I think it kind of shows that where Francis, okay, so let me just read these two paragraphs. I hope it's a good game today, Francis. They've she's decided they've decided to drop the conversation, and um, they consciously it says they joined hands consciously and walked without talking. So they they're trying to move on, move past this. And finally, she says, "I hope it's a good game today," Francis said after a while. Her tone, a good imitation of the tone she had used at breakfast and at the beginning of their walk. You know what a great line. I'm trying to forget all this. Let's pretend this didn't happen. I like professional football games. They hit each other as though they're made out of concrete. When they tackle each other, she said, trying to make Michael laugh, they make divots. It's very exciting. I want to tell you something, Michael said very seriously. I have not touched another woman, not once, in all the five years. This is one of those things like she's trying to change a subject and he can't let it go. And, you know, a novice writer would put something in between that would would make him answer her before he said that um, or do something, just make it more complicated than it needs to be. We know that he's still thinking about that and that he's not listening to her because of exactly what he says next. There's so much communicated by the fact that they're not communicating in that moment. Yes. So this is a section I referenced before, and I'm only going to read it, even though we have two better examples now, because I mentioned it. I don't want to leave people hanging, but this is a section that I remembered thinking like, this is a good like example of him trying to back out of something without saying exactly what he means. And it's, it's that scene where I said he's admitting that like, yeah, one day he'll probably cheat. So she, this is Francis. She says, I'm good for you. Francis said, pleading. I've made a good wife, a good housekeeper, a good friend. I'd do any damn thing for you. I know, Michael said. He put his hand out and grasped hers. You'd like to be free to, Francis said. Shh. 
Tell the truth. She took her hand away from under his. Michael flicked the edge of his glass with his finger. Okay, he said gently. Sometimes I feel I would like to be free. Well, Francis said defiantly, drumming on the table. Anytime you say, don't be foolish. Michael swung his chair around to her side of the table and patted her thigh. This goes on and it's it's all great. But these little moments of prose where it says, you know, Michael flicked the edge of his glass with a finger. There's another section where it says Michael didn't say anything. He sat watching the bartender slowly peel a lemon. Yeah. We're not even getting inside his head. That's not technically inside his head. It's just what he's doing. It's like stage notes. But there's so much communicated in the silences too. And this is like a husband like determined not to take the bait almost, right? He's like stealing himself he's taking a minute and he's not angry yet but he's just intentionally being quiet like he feels he still has this conversation under control there's just like so much obvious at play in these dynamics that's what makes it great reading and i'm not reading this slowly and like pulling this out it's all communicated instantly i'm reading through it as as quickly as it's happening and i'm able to decipher what he's thinking like in real time i am francis and uh that's why it's like so expertly done he he does it with so few words yeah i think we're uh genetically programmed to read into conversation because that's what we want you know it's like why uh that's how society works right it's like what's not being communicated what can i figure out based on what is being communicated you do that in real life all the time and it just makes sense that it happens in fiction too i do it while i'm watching the bachelor a lot too Of course. Anything. Yeah. Newscasters. The way like <laughs> if you have a local newscaster sitting next to each other and the way they don't look at each other and don't yeah. talk to each other, the way their banter fails. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, That's a good point. Especially when you're watching strangers talk, right? Like people do that game all the time. They see like two strangers arguing in public and you immediately form this whole relationship in your head and you're adamant that it's accurate, right? Because you're just like, watch this. Did you hear what he said? Oh my God, that's what it means. Yeah, I mean, people arguing and couples especially, that's just like drama 101. Yeah, that is my favorite. I think that's the best exercise for for writers who want to think about dialogue is to listen to people not communicating to each other. Yeah. I, I thought you were going to say like eavesdropping too, but yeah. Oh, eavesdrops on it. Absolutely. And then just pay attention to it. Yeah. And that's obviously unscripted dialogue is the best to listen to. Don't watch movies and expect to write good dialogue. You already read the ending, I think, as an example for part of this, but uh, basically it ends because they decide, like you said, to call up the Stevensons and then she gets up to make the call. And then you read the line, but he's thinking to himself, what a pretty girl, what nice legs about his wife. And it's almost like in that moment, he probably is thinking that almost intentionally, but like making a point to himself that, see, I appreciate all beauty. See? (laughs) Yeah, that's a good question. Is he doing it consciously or is he doing it unconsciously? I mean, in this context, he's doing it consciously i don't think he's doing it intentionally but he's noticing his own thoughts about his wife and he's like see look i have them about my wife too he would have thought that had they not argued that day but he wouldn't have thought to himself i'm a good guy (laughs) (laughs) that's right this makes it all better yeah When I read it the first time, I wasn't thinking to myself that this was some kind of a snarky cherry on top, but it felt concise in the argument and it felt like an ending point. And this feels like one of those endings that had I come up with it, I would have been like, oh my, oh, it's perfect. Nothing is more perfect than this ending. I just loved it. When I, I wasn't sure where this was going to end. I wasn't sure that I'd be satisfied, right? And um, I thought, wow, wow, this is great. Great, great, great. 
Yeah. So do you have a takeaway for this story? I mean, we covered it. My takeaway is dialogue. Do the dialogue. I mean, the way the story does dialogue without needing to do a lot of exposition, you read this a hundred times just to find all the moves. You can learn so much from this. It's really good. Yeah. And um, this is less a takeaway and more like an assignment or something or something that I think I'll definitely do after this one, which is that um, to your point, the strength is dialogue, obviously. But I like that it's a single topic of conversation that continues throughout maybe this is only two hours maybe it's an hour if you can picture like people circling back to a conversation a point of conversation it doesn't have to be contentious necessarily it could be like about gossip or whatever but if they keep circling back to it like as they go from breakfast to lunch or breakfast back to the house or they're in the car and then they're over here there's something about like the changing location and the fact that it keeps coming up that like signals to the reader that this is it this is the story and also it's so real that way. I feel like a lot of times in the inexperienced work that we might read, a conversation of this magnitude or like important somehow might be something that people think happens all at once. And it doesn't like some of the biggest arguments and things that you have happen (laughs) multiple times and you just keep revisiting it, maybe not in the same day, but like over the course of months even. So if you can think about something doesn't have to be, like I said, be an argument, but something that you can like really stretch out, I think it could make for like a really good story. And that's like definitely what I'm going to do after this one yeah the way conversations move you know and the way that they even try not to talk about it but it keeps coming back that is such a great dynamic to steal from you know to notice how that happens in an ordinary conversation you know even like biggest fight in the world and then like oh something happens gotta deal with it I think in dialogue, when you're having that kind of extended argument that you're talking about, it's easy to, um, not easy to, but it's easy to focus too much on it without giving the conversation those moments of, of break, of breaking away. And, you know, if it's a couple, they will talk about something that they're comfortable talking about before they come back to it. Right. Even if it's not a couple, like a, a boss and an employee or something who's having a, a discussion, a customer comes in and they know how to deal with a customer and they deal with the customer, and then they come back to that argument or so, you know, something like that. There's always the ability to break it up and show their uh, how good they are at doing what is ordinary for them. Yeah. The dialogue again, we talked about it in the last story too, Joyce Carol Oates, all dialogue. So if you don't write more of it <laughs> after these two episodes, you're doing something wrong. Because these, I think, these are like two of my favorites in a long time. Like I like every story that we read, but I think these are two that I'll probably continue to refer to many episodes down the road. You know, it's interesting. We did that story, uh, Raymond Carver, what we talk about when we talk about love yeah and that was we talked a lot about dialogue in that for that episode but we don't bring it up very much i don't know why i meant to for this one i swear Yeah, I thought of it too when I was reading it. Yeah, in that one, it's two couples and they're talking about whatever, but it has the same era almost. It feels like the same time. They might as well be the Stevensons and it might as well be that story is going to happen after this one, right? Yeah, that's right. Where two couples get around a table and they just like drink and there's no cell phones, so they just have to keep talking. Yeah, there's something really familiar, not just that it's dialogue or anything, but like the content and the the era were really similar for me too. But yeah, I'll probably start referring to this one because I picked this one, right? Yeah, there you go. Very good. Well, thanks, guys. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to our monthly newsletter at our website, NaplesWritersWorkshop.com. And for daily writing tips, industry news, and great short fiction, join our Facebook group at Facebook.com slash groups slash Naples Writers Workshop.